sales of capital safety products were in high demand. They had a very impressive line of harnesses. That one paired with tripods, davits, winches, shock packs, and connectors, it became quite a total package. The brand was glowing. The postal workers were, were, were literally funding 75 years in advance for employees uh, that not only aren't born, their grandkids are probably not born. The, the plight of black domestic workers was always central to black feminism. So even things like teacher wages and benefits, which critics tend to pawn off as selfish, are directly related to the best interests of students. It, it is a it is a soup bowl of anxiety and fear if if you don't have the coping mechanisms necessary. Being able to walk into a city and see your work uh, demonstrated around you is an extraordinarily powerful virtual psychological boost and gives those people, the building trades people in general, type of pride that's much harder to find when you're making you know, switches and signals and it goes all over the country. When this plant opened, that's why they did the seats because we used to have those jobs in assembly. This was building seats. In fact, we took the foam and hog ringed it and put it on the frame and put the cover over it wow. and did all that work. That was in a cushion room that happened. When we went to, uh, we were in San Francisco because my dad moved me in uh, to begin graduate school at Stanford. Uh, we walked from the ferry building uh, down Market Street and we looked around and we did not see any black folks. It didn't look right, it didn't look healthy. So I propped her up on my writing desk and my kids said, who's this? Why is there a lady staring at us from the writing desk? And she sat there for a while staring at me as I would work. And I eventually started writing to her as though she's looking over my shoulder and I'm, hey, stop looking at me. In the old days, there used to be 30, 40 clowns on some of these shows. And then the shows got less. When I started, there were around 150 shows on the road. I think now there might be 10, 15 at the most. And all of a sudden you had nowhere to go. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, we're featuring perhaps the most shows ever, 10 from across the country, including one from our neighbor to the north. Instead of previewing the topics, which you just got a taste of at the top, this week, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about the shows you'll be hearing from today. The Canadian Union Podcast for Employees comes from Canadian Union of Public Employees, Local 3738, out of Calgary, Canada. Airing every Saturday from 7 to 8 p.m. on WPHT 1210 AM, The Labor Show bills itself as the radio voice of Philadelphia's labor movement. Black Work Talk is an organizing upgrade podcast created by host Stephen Pitts, which takes a look at efforts to build the collective power of black workers. Produced by the Debs Jones Douglas Institute, the Class Matters podcast aims to expose the propaganda undermining worker faith in government and provide a forum to discuss a strategic roadmap for building a country that works for working people. A podcast about the comeback of the live events industry following the extended shutdown due to COVID-19, the Live Event Workers podcast is supported by IATSE, the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, the union behind entertainment. The Iron Workers Rising podcast comes from the organizing department of the International Association of Bridge, Structural, Ornamental, and Reinforcing Iron Workers Union. 
from United Auto Workers Local 2209 in Fort Wayne, Indiana, comes the Trucked Up Podcast. The Dig Podcast from Jacobin Magazine goes deep into politics everywhere, from labor struggles and political economy to imperialism and immigration. Union autoworker, poet, and activist Dan Denton hosts the Blue Collar Gospel Hour, a podcast for the 99%, featuring entertainment, news, music, poetry, art, and interviews with interesting people. Our final show this week is from America Works, an ongoing podcast series from the Library of Congress. America Works features the voices of contemporary workers from throughout the United States talking about their lives, their workplaces, and their on-the-job experiences drawn from hundreds of longer oral history interviews collected by field workers for the American Folklife Center's Occupational Folklife Project. You can find all these shows and, of course, the rest of the 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. You're listening to the Canadian Union Podcast for Employees. My name is Scott. For this episode, I'm going to describe a personal realization about the business of safety and the complexities around identifying a failure in a product. If you like Red Wing shoes like I do, then you should know that the safety harnesses are also manufactured on the same street in the same city, as well as Riddell Skates. Capital Safety at the time of the, the incident I'm talking about was a company that was growing fast. In their growth, they started buying other companies. As it grew, it was poached and purchased by 3M for $1.8 billion. Unsubstantiated reports estimate the safety gear that 3M purchased, that company, makes over $300 million a year, which means there's a good amount of money to be made when you're in the business of safety. It also means that you can take the market share Even by just a small percentage, a small company can make large returns or eventually be bought out by those bigger fish. Why does this matter? A growing brand will suffer setbacks. If your business is growing, you don't want to harm that brand in any way. Just like a safety business will employ mitigations to protect the company image, during its incredible growth, the sales of capital safety products were in high demand. They had a very impressive line of harnesses. That one paired with tripods, davits, winches, shock packs, and connectors, it became quite a total package. They even devised and adopted near-field communication systems as a standard to inventory and inspection. The brand was glowing. When an overspeed check was performed on the Salaflift 2, the drum would lock up, and it would confirm that the winch was acting as suspected. No one had any reason to doubt how it was engineered until we had a guy miss a rung on the way down. The entrance was near the bottom of our space and somehow missed a ladder rung. They fell to the bottom. While their pride was thankfully the only thing that was injured, the Salif 2 did not perform as expected. The drum did not appear to lock. 
We considered this a fall in the system. We got the winch recertified, came back. At the time, the winch was over $3,000. The certifications were $1,000. And they went to a certified reseller who had a person recertify that winch. It comes back wrapped in bubble wrap. We had no reason to think anything was wrong. And when the pre-checks were completed, it was determined that the overspeed braking system it didn't engage again. The winch was taken out of service and then sent back. $1,000 calibrations, new bubble wrap, the winch started to raise our eyebrows. We went through our inspection. We got the last step of an overspeed brake check. And again, it failed. Not only did it fail, a metal piece fell out onto the ground of the, out of the winch. The bad news is it was going to cost us another $1,000 to send it back in. The good news was we know and knew what had failed. We could identify the part. The company was pushing this model hard. The sales uh, rep for the area was a super guy. He knew how to sell. And Capital Safety was our preferred safety product. In attendance were field trainers, technical trainers, the safety advisor, and we had the sales rep come in to our training facility. And in the meeting, we explained our problem. Our safety advisor tried to make a very good case for a massive recall. The regional salesperson listened to what we had said, and he said to us that this was the first time he had ever seen this issue, even suggesting that we were perhaps pulling too hard on the overspeed check. With a self-retracting device, overspeed checks are normal. Could we, we really be pulling with too much force? We didn't think so. Years later, when I revisited the issue, I contacted Capital Safety, and like an epiphany, it hit me. Capital Safety did do a recall. They just didn't call it a recall. They used legislation to their advantage. According to the CSA, winches must be recertified yearly. Reputations, they're fragile. And safety companies can suffer great losses in confidence if their equipment is, you know, if, we, if the confidence in your equipment is lost, normally speaking, people will look elsewhere. I have this feeling that they did a calculation that they didn't have to recall that winch. Even if they knew of the problem and weren't ready to admit it, or if this was the first time they saw it, all they had to do is wait 18 months. Training my group we moved away from the saddle lift too. We, we didn't send the broken winch in for recertification. Remember that just because the thing isn't working for you doesn't mean that the entire line is unusable. In the world of safety, it is the user that stumbles on these failures. So don't keep it to yourself. Unions force these conversations to occur outside of a vacuum. They offer support and a place to bounce solutions off of. April 28th is coming, and by being mindful of safety in your brain, you'll not only register what not to do, but how to avoid it by recognizing what being safe actually means. I haven't had a fatality happen in front of me or around me, but I do take a minute to remember those who've lost their lives on April 28th. Unions play a part here. And you might not recognize it, or you may have your mind fixated on other items, but worker safety is on the top of a union's list. Thanks for listening. Now on Talk Radio 1210 WP.
Jay, Doc, and Krause. If we don't move in our own direction, we're going to become extinct. In fact, in some cases, we're close to being extinct right now. Presented by the law offices of Pond, Lee Hockey, Giordano. Talk, listen, and speak to the region's most influential leaders. Joe, we've heard a lot of talk over the years about the need for uh, postal reform, and it's finally happening. And uh, we've talked about it with the, our upcoming guest, uh, Vince Tarducci. And uh, there's a lot of, lot of good things to talk about, and I'm ecstatic to bring him into the broadcast. It's been a while, so I uh, want to bring on Vince Tarducci, who's the national business agent for the American Postal Workers Union. Vince, how are you, sir? Good evening, guys. So, buddy, you know we do we we, we appreciate you, uh, you know, get you know you 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 being with us tonight. If you can, we you know we mentioned obviously the postal reform, and a couple uh, months ago you would you'd sent me an email and say it's finally happening. Um, if you would uh, talk about it and 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 the fine points of it, the, the, the important the major points of it. Well, it was a sixteen-year battle, guys. Going back to the lame duck of George Bush in Congress in 2006, we went through rallies, talk shows like your own. We did letter writing, lobbying, etc. And finally, uh, with the help of our national EPW, President Biden on April 6th signed the Postal Service Reform Act bill into law. It will keep the Postal Service solvent for years and years to come. We're all excited. I appreciate the opportunity to get it across your way, your airwaves. Thank you. Uh, just a few things. The actual vote was unbelievable. It was 342 to 92 in the House and 79 to 19 in the Senate. Overwhelming bipartisan support. Unheard of in a lot of these issues. And we've eliminated the past due payments of $53 billion billion would it be now off the boards we couldn't survive this was overdue we're so excited about it and uh, i'm glad to bring it to you now now, now vince it, that it, it, is that the 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 those payments that uh your union and your members had to put up for for like 60 years worth of future members that we've talked about so many times is it related to that yes we, the mandate required the Postal Service to set billions of dollars aside each year to pre-fund retiree health benefits 75 years into the future. Nobody does it. It was horrible. They had to pay it. Eventually, we couldn't pay it, and now we have the relief. And, as, and being one of the highest percentage of ratings that the Postal Service has, we'll be able to continue to produce for the American people. Yeah, and, and, and I remember we talked about that. And I want the, 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 the listeners to understand, you heard Vince right. The postal workers were, were, were literally funding 75 years in advance for employees um, that, that, op, that not only aren't born, their grandkids are probably not born. It was one of the most bizarre things ever that stressed the workforce and the entire industry like never before. What what was the def- deciding factor? When did common sense come in, Vince? Well, it, it, it was lobbying each year, having bills presented, and finally we got it across the finish line. Phone calls by our members to their respective congressional leaders in both the House and the Senate, and they came together. Listen, 
the Postal Service is popular in the eyes of the American people. We had some problems during the pandemic, like a lot of other people did. And it, it was just hard work on behalf of our members, our national leadership, just making phone calls, writing letters, et cetera. This pre-funding mandate, guys, alone was responsible for 84% of the USPS losses since 2007. So lifting of this mandate is phenomenal for the American people. So those numbers I gave you in terms of voting and passing this is tremendous. You know, we thought it would pass. We didn't think it would pass so overwhelming. We thought we finally had an opportunity to get it past the finish line. So, Vince, well, jo- uh, well done by you, sir. Appreciate it, man. Thanks, guys. Take care. I appreciate it. Take care. All right, Vince. Thanks for roughing that up, buddy. You did a great job. All right, good, good stuff job. from All Vincent right. Tarducci joining us here tonight on The Labor Show with J. Doc and Krause. Hey, folks. This is Stephen Pitts, um, co-host of Black War Talk. And I'm so glad to have my partner in crime on this, my, my good friend, Sheree Davis. Sheree, how you doing? Hey, Steve. How you doing, Stephen? I'm fine. We're going to have, we're having with us Beverly Guy Sheffield. I first met Beverly, we didn't quite meet at the same conference, basically, um, maybe about 20 years ago. Um, people have called Beverly the, the, the godmother of black feminism. And that may or may not be a good, I like that. <laughs> that good term, Beverly. Can we call, call you that? No, I like that. Okay. That's your title now. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. You're welcome. So, Godmother, tell me a bit about Black Feminism. What is Black Feminism? In memory of Bell Hooks, with whom I shared a 40-year friendship, I want to give um, her definition of feminism, which is not the definition of white feminism. And basically, Black Feminism is the political idea that all forms of oppression, which are global and persistent, all forms of oppression are interconnected and structural. So white supremacy, racism, heterosexism, ableism, class disparities, all of those systems of oppression are connected and we experience them simultaneously. In other words, at the same time. So black feminists who, you know, talk about intersectional feminism, say that we have to dismantle all of those structural systems of oppression and that we cannot prioritize one over the other. So white supremacy is dangerous and needs to be eradicated. Heteropatriarchy is dangerous and needs to be eradicated. So that's what I would say a, a black feminism is. It, is. it is this idea that all of these systems of oppression, which oppress us and keep us out of power positions need to be eradicated. And from a black feminist perspective, (laughs) talk a lot about the fact that racism isn't the only form of oppression that keeps black people not liberated. So that's what I would say black feminism is. Bringing labor struggles front and center Um, This is the place where people are talking about picket lines to me. This is the place where they're making it very clear about um, women of color being factory workers or or, or being excluded from these types of union opportunities or what have you. This this is the beginning of this. And so, you know, I'm always it's a very interesting piece to have these conversations within labor, because oftentimes people have a very specific labor history that they bring to the conversation and very often the relationship to black feminism is completely absent 
um, and, 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 and really honestly under discussed. Could I say something in that regard? Uh, the, the plight of black domestic workers was always central to black feminism. And I'm thinking about the washerwomen's strike in Atlanta in the, in the early 1900s. Now we didn't, we didn't construct that as, as black feminists, but that was a black feminist uh, uh, project. Right. <laughs> black feminist project, but it got, it, it got put into civil rights and race, but it was really intersectional black feminist project. Right. And, and also like very clearly, uh, we will shut down the city. Right. We, we will shut down the city. We will not do any work and you will not be able to bring was it the expo. You will not be. be yes. You will not be able to yes. do what you need to do. So they're hitting at the government and they're hitting in the, you know, with the employers at the same time. Uh, understanding political economy, there's no way to engage any of the things that are happening with black women in work without engaging in both you know, those arenas at all times. Well, I, I, I can't think of, I mean, I, I, I would say that one of the reasons you had black feminism emerging in the 19th century in the early 20th, it was because of class. It, 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 it was because black women experienced racism, patriarchy, and class inequality. Class was always, was always a part of, of, of black feminism because we constantly talk, black feminists constantly talk about us having, having, the, the worst pay, the worst kinds of jobs, service jobs, uh, inability therefore to, to, to have a certain uh, level of living. And, and we always talked about it, Cherie said, that we are, we are in the wage labor force always. Black women are wage workers, period. And so black feminism never was about um, uh, uh, the black, the few black women in our communities who had class privilege. It was always about of what does it mean to have not have class privilege, race privilege, or gender privilege? Thanks for joining me this week on Blackboard Talk. Stay safe and be well. Welcome to Class Matters, the podcast where we ask the question, what would our country look like if it were governed by and for the working class? I'm Catherine Isaac, Executive Director. In this episode, Adolph Reed Jr. talks with Chicago Teachers Union President Jesse Sharkey and Professor Daniel Moak about the COVID-19 pandemic and the strong debate it has provoked about the organization and function of our K-12 education system. Welcome, President Sharkey and Professors Moak and Reed. You know, we've come up against this tide of a, a strong media and elite narrative that teachers' unions are self-serving and, and that their interests are at odds with those of students and parents. So I know, President Sharkey, that former Mayor Rahm Emanuel and the um, elite media were all shocked to see how strong support for the union and its demands was among parents and in the community at large. I'm sure our listeners would like to hear how the CTU you know, would, or how you each actually would respond to statements like this. The clear attack line in a whole kind of tradition of right-wing propaganda is that somehow teachers are other you know, the interests of students and people who want a good education is over here and the teachers are doing something different over there. And that's not, that just is not true. I mean, in the first case, teachers' working conditions are student learning conditions. 
you can't draw, you know, if you're thinking about it, like logically, in terms of like, in terms of real world, you know, real world application of it, you know, if I've got a classroom with no resources, and, you know, teaching and have too many students in front of me, and there's, and, and there's no social workers, and no library, and no library, etc. That's going to make school worse for students. But it's also the case that if unions are democratically led and not afraid to fight the people in power, we will have been raising the demands about what we need in our schools all along. There is a lot of room where people can put a wedge between us and parents because parents will notice the things that are wrong with our schools. But in situations like we had in Chicago, where we had actually been speaking up about school closings and speaking up about school privatization and speaking up about the lack of resources and speaking up about the dirty conditions, et cetera, and not just speaking up, but actually like pushing those protests and those demands for better conditions as far and as hard as we could up until the point where like you go face to face with their supposedly democratic mechanism and expose that it isn't really democratic at all. And then people get to see who's really like behind the curtain and who's really pulling the strings. Professor Moak. Yeah, I mean, I was just reminded when President Sharkey was speaking, actually, I was transported back to high school where as teachers in my public high school, the Billings Education Association actually went on strike. And that was the first time I heard teacher working conditions are student learning conditions. And I think that's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you look at what teachers have been fighting for in recent years, In addition to things like decent pay and benefits, it's things like reducing class sizes, investing in school infrastructure, more support staff like counselors, librarians, school nurses, all of which directly positively affect student learning outcomes. But even if you just want to focus on teacher pay and benefits, many of the negative outcomes that we were talking about earlier, like massive teacher shortages due to low pay, and then the subsequent throwing out the window of the professional requirements and to fill these empty positions, are disasters for students because you either have to end up raising class sizes or hiring unqualified people to fill those positions, which nobody, no sort of parent would really want to see happen. So even things like teacher wages and benefits, which critics tend to pawn off as selfish, are directly related to the best interests of students. I want to thank you both very much on the behalf of the Class Matters podcast and take care and you keep up the good work, everybody. You've been listening to the Class Matters podcast. This is the Live Event Workers Podcast. We're talking with live event workers about their jobs and about their future. Joining us to talk about mental health are two live event workers from Grand Rapids, Michigan, Beth Snyder, and Denver, Colorado, Max Peterson. Hi, my name is Beth Snyder. My name is Max Peterson, and I am a stagehand. I, live events have been, I mean, theater has been what I do for, <laughs> kind of defined who I am for a really long time. I think it is important for us all to remember that we all just went through a traumatic event. And I don't think that we talk about it enough. And then now the expectation is that we just start again as if it didn't happen. The expectation is that you show up and just go to work. That's really hard to do that. It's hard. Um, 
And it's really important to remember that that happened, remember where I'm coming from, but also remember that it's going to be okay. Are jobs and live events stressful? Beth? Oh, absolutely. I for, it, First and foremost, you never know. There will be work or there won't be work. You could work zero hours. You could work 85 hours. It, you, you don't know. So just the, the uncertainty on income is a thing. But then when there is work, like the show came into town this morning, and now we're going to do it, and everybody expects it to look right. Yes, jobs in the live event industry are incredibly stressful. We're dealing with with people and personalities who – don't always have the best coping mechanisms. We're dealing with incredibly strict deadlines. We're dealing with uh, lack of sleep, lack of, you know, hungry, lonely, tired, right? Especially when I was on the road, that was very much what, you know, what my life consisted of. And then you add on the realities of not knowing when the next job is going to come after this one, not knowing when this one is going to end. When the closing notice is going to come, it, it is a it is a soup bowl of anxiety and fear if uh, if you don't uh, have the coping mechanisms necessary. This is the Live Event Workers Podcast. Thanks for listening. This is the Iron Workers Rising podcast, standing with you to fight for workers' rights everywhere. Good day and welcome. We're your hosts, Anna Woodbury and Ron Gray. This is our first podcast, and we're excited to welcome our guests, Charlie McAllister and Rich Rowe. These are two gentlemen with extensive knowledge of organized labor as educators, historians, and activists. Welcome, Charlie and Rich. Thank you both for being here. Great to be here. Charlie, you're from the Pittsburgh area. Our union started in your own backyard. Can you tell us what you know about the Iron Workers Union and why you think it formed? We also heard that you were involved in getting some sort of marker dedicated to our union. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, the founding convention. I helped get the state historical marker with Ray Robertson, who I know is a good friend of many. Here, I mean, obviously, we're a city of bridges. We have more bridges. They used to say Venice had more, but now they found a couple more in Pittsburgh, and they now we claim we have more bridges than any other city. And we're a relatively small city uh, in terms of geographic size. So there were a lot of bridges here, uh, and the Union was founded in uh, 1896, but the Wabash Bridge collapse in 1903 was very traumatic here. About a dozen people were killed, people on the boats underneath, uh, barges, as well as iron workers uh, dropping from the bridge that collapsed in the center. And uh, so I think that, you know, the drive for safety and health in a very dangerous industry is obviously central. Also, I'm thinking of Red Collins, who was the apprentice director of the iron workers and the elder that we um, interviewed uh, for building Pittsburgh. And he, he and others like T.J. McGarvey, Marine, who organized uh, the construction of free. No, not a paid, nobody was paid to build the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Pittsburgh, one of those beautiful memorials uh, to veterans in the country. I think it rivaled 
cables, the, the wall in Washington, D.C., and that was built by union labor, by iron workers primarily, with no compensation. Contractors gave everything. Iron workers have a deep sense of solidarity. It's a culture, Red Collins used to say. It's it's a way of life. Uh, T.J. McGarvey always said that. It's a way of life. And I, I think the satisfaction that comes from being able to walk into a city and see your work uh, demonstrated around you is an extraordinarily powerful spiritual psychological boost and gives those people, the building trades people in general, a type of pride that's much harder to find when you're making you know switches and signals and it goes all over the country or making steel, which you can't tell where where your steel came from necessarily so it's there you see it it's it's the legacy and i remember we taught a class to trades and we've done a bunch of classes on the side for free for various people and i remember the guy that gave his presentation and he was supposed to his presentation was telling us to walk outside and look around and he began to name all the things that he had had a hand in and it was extremely moving to everybody in that class so i think that pride that uh, that safety, solidarity, you got to look out for each other. I mean, constantly, it's like being a coal miner. Coal miners have the tightest solidarity of any union. You're down 500 feet, <laughs> 3,000 feet in Germany, 5,000 feet in South Africa. You better depend on those people you're down there with. And uh, that's, I think that that kind of mutuality, solidarity, looking out for each other and, and the culture of the trades is something I've always admired. That's how, that's the iron workers. <laughs> Join us on our next episode when we have Rich and Charlie back to discuss the hurdles of organizing and the relevancy of unions today. Thank you for listening to the Iron Workers Rising podcast, your Iron Workers Network. Please check us out on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and at www.ironworkersrising.org. Welcome, everyone. This is Trucked Up Radio uh, with Michael Scott. I got Nelson Rodriguez here with me and Mark Gabart. Say hello, gentlemen. Hey, hey. You're getting better at saying Rodriguez. Right. Yeah, he's done. For a white guy, he's doing good, isn't he? Right. <laughs> Do you want me to develop an accent? Hey, if you hey. can roll the R a little bit, that'd be uh, okay, I'll, too. I'll, I'll work on it. Act like you're ordering food. Right. Well, we're glad to be here. So with, with EVs, because you brought that up, so there's a lot of differences, right, in the production of it. And that, that's something yes. that we have to think about as auto workers. Less people. Is, right. It's, it's about huge. 30% less from mm. what I've seen and people online. worry about that in the plant, and they justify it worrying about it. But at the same time, through attrition, you're mm-hmm. not going to feel it as much because you're right. not going to have the motor line. Right. You know, you right. have some different version maybe because you, you put those those electrical cells in there. Well, and don't think GM won't work to make sure stuff's built oh, already coming here God. and kitted and then put in a sequential order. So they'll, I mean, when this plant opened, that's why they did the seats. Because yeah. we used to have those jobs in assembly. This was building seats. In oh, fact, you see those old, yeah. f- old photos of the guys that are on strike. They're sitting in seats that are truck seats mm-hmm. sitting on the mm-hmm. in, at Flint mm-hmm. in those old black and whites. Well, we did those seats. We took the foam and hog ringed it and put it on the frame and put the cover over it. And did all that work. That was in a cushion room. That happened. So they outsourced those things here, and that was some of the first things I saw. I was like, geez, here we go. And that's they want to take our motor line, our IP line, and many facilities in the GM system have that, whether it's car or truck. So that will be a big – that's where the impact comes. That's where people are nervous. I mean, and, and 
we could bring some of those back though. Mm -hmm. We'll have space to bring some of that work back. And why not? GM is about consolidating. They they want their their low, they're having their little corridor under one roof, right? Exactly. If we get it all under one roof, exactly. yeah. Exactly. It's like their supply chains. They're narrowing their supply chains. Well, because you're so well. just in time. It's like you one snowstorm and you're trying to bring engines from Tonawanda yeah. and you got nine inches of snow between here and Tonawanda. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, I was in Buffalo when we had the six feet. Oh yeah. Oh, my God. I felt like I was. In no engines world. were leaving that town. Oh my God. I had like six seven people sleeping in my apartment. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. They yeah. didn't make it home. It was a whole wall. A wall yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. That's the same snowstorm, right? I remember seeing videos mm -hmm. coming off Niagara Falls, right? It was mm -hmm. just a blanket. You couldn't yeah, see yeah. anything. Couldn't see anything, yeah. It was actually beautiful, though, because I was coming out the plant, and the Peace Bridge is right there, and Canada is right there, and you see the wall cutting right through the middle of the city because mm -hmm. the plant where we're located is right next to the river right there. Right. It's, it's a beautiful location. So you saw that wall going past, and you're like, oh, wow, that's beautiful. Until you start driving towards <laughs> it. Right. You can't go anywhere. <laughs> Your car sucks. <laughs> But EV, I mean, it's a, to me, this is my only personal thing. To me, I feel, as our location, that EVs is our future. And if we don't get into that market before Mexico or some other, mm -hmm. you know, well, Mexico is really our main competition right now. But if, if we don't get in that market before they do, as far as getting that work, yeah. then, then we know it's really right. going to start affecting that. Because eventually it is going to be the main market. It is going to be EVs. Yeah. But in the meantime... GM needs our truck. Yeah. They need the electric gas vehicle. Th that'll happen. I see that happening for another decade, yeah. minimum another decade for yes. sure. So it might be a fight of you. It look, if you look at the amount of trucks sold per calendar year, we're several hundred thousand, you know, we're at 300 plus thousand. Rich Letourneau put a number out recently of what our number is for the right. year type of thing. So you look at that number and that's what they expect of us mm -hmm. to build. And hey, can you build more of that? It's all market-based and they exactly. forecast what's going to happen quarter after quarter. So you really have exactly. a plan to figure out what's going to be. So I'm not worried that the that combustion engine is going to be around. Climate change be damned. Yes, I agree that that's happening and it's something we should address, but it ain't changing because the consumer won't allow it to change. You're not going to hire a guy who's doing insulation in your house who's not driving a Chevy or a Ford or a Chrysler into your driveway or three of them show up with unloading all the tools they need and everything. Those pickups got to have it. Yeah, Trailers, I, I everything. I was exciting last year. Mm -hmm. I still haven't got to put it on yet. But I'm like, I wanted to, my wife's like, you were canceling this damn thing. And I'm like, girl, you know how much inflation is right now? You right. cancel this and we do it during the summer. We're going to probably pay double. Right. And I was like, no, we're going to hold off and just be like, hey, come on, buddies. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coach them back in. Yeah. <laughs> the weather's getting warm. Right. Because so we, yeah. we had a woodpecker. And the woodpecker's just eating up the side of our house. Oh. It's right where our, our bedroom is. And so she's no good time of oh day. They set us to the worst place yeah. they could be. And my wife works third shift, so she comes home. Mm -hmm. You know, you need a third shift. Oh, there. I know. And, and she's Will yelling Packers at you, me. you need to stop this. It's oh, your fault. <laughs> <laughs> so now I got a good siding on it. Now. I, I love the lights wood look in the front, but those woodpeckers like it better than I yeah, do. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Soft wood, they love that. It goes right through it. Well, we look forward to having you back again sometime soon. We'll talk again. There's always some great stuff to talk about. Absolutely. Dustin Jenkins, welcome to The Dig. Thank you so much, Asha. Pleasure to be here. So yeah, let's finally, let's go to San Francisco because you you that is where your story is centered. And through San Francisco, you tell a larger parable. I mean, you make the case in the book that really what you're talking about in these debt arrangements you know, have global implications. We see them you know, on a much larger level. At the same time, what's interesting about San Francisco is that it's got a lot of uniqueness, 
right? It doesn't, you say in the introduction, doesn't fit into the standard story of deindustrialization. And so that it's kind of breaks the mold in some ways. So, So I'd love to just hear about what drew you to the example of San Francisco and what is that significance and why is it such a, a, a powerful place to tell the story of how lenders came to rule over our cities? Yeah. So, so I, I guess I'll begin with, um, I mean, the general question, how I came to the project and to focus in on San Francisco. I mean, you know, for anybody who's written a book, they'll tell you the, the routes, the, the pathways charted, few steps on one and then like abandoning very quickly. Uh, so, you know, the, the project did not start out as a book about municipal debt. It did focus, it, it did begin really uh, interested in questions of redevelopment and gentrification in San Francisco. Um, but it was, it was uh, the municipal debt stuff came much later. But what drew me to San Francisco was actually um, my dad and I, we go on, we go uh, to different baseball stadiums around the country. We have since 2005. Hopefully we'll be able to do it this year. Last two years interrupted by COVID and now we have a strike uh, or really a lockout uh, and a strike. Um, some, something, you know, in between. Um, so anyway, we we kind of see this as like a sociological experiment. Like we look around, we check out the architecture. We think about, you know, for instance, when we went to Cincinnati, we thought about the rust belt, older economy and industrial economy. Uh, and layered atop that was the kind of ghost of financialization. We would go downtown and these commercial office buildings were totally empty. So you had two different kind of political economies uh, really hollowed out and you saw it manifested in the landscape. And then you also saw the outsized importance of sports and local commerce with the downtown baseball stadium. So anyway, that that's something we've done. And when we went to, uh, we were in San Francisco because my dad moved me in uh, to begin graduate school at Stanford. Uh, we walked from the ferry building uh, down Market Street and we looked around and we did not see any black folks in uh, during, our, during our, our walk until we got to the Tenderloin. And it was just like, you know, it was just chaos. It was chaos on the street. It was just, it didn't look right. It didn't look healthy. It didn't look like that's where folks need to be. Um, and certainly it looked like it was hard to ignore that p- these folks were being neglected. And that's where you saw all the black folks at, at the time. Um, certainly you have black folks living in Bayview, Hunters Point, the Western edition and, and, and so forth. But um, so basically what drew me to San Francisco as a research project, as a site, was to think about the story of the city by the bay, of the city that you know knows how, the city that uh, has, quote unquote, gotten it right in terms of tolerance in terms of cultural experimentation, whether you think about the summer of love, uh, the city that has gotten it right in terms of progressive policies, but yet thinking about the particular place of Black folks in this economy, in this political establishment, um, and and trying to think about, is that a contradiction of liberalism? Is that uh, a fulfillment of, of, liberal, of a certain kind of liberalism, uh, colorblind in particular? Uh, and so that's what drew me to San Francisco, was to really think about the place of Black folks in this, in, in this city that, quote unquote, got it right. Um, and, you know, San Francisco is interesting because uh, for those reasons, but also, and I say this in the book, it's it's a really great case study to look at the power of bondholders over time and um, the kind of um, the consequences of structural dependence on the bond market. Because again, in San Francisco, as you as you mentioned at the beginning, it doesn't have the story. It's not a Rust Belt story, right? It's not a story of Detroit, Cleveland, Milwaukee. 
It's not a story of, uh, of the Sun Belt even, uh, in terms of the military industrial complex, though certainly you have, you know, the, the military is very important in the Bay Area during World War II. But it's a it's a it's actually a city that in the you know as early as I, I found it, as the early 1950s, beginning to deepen its ties to finance, insurance, and real estate, right? Seeing the fire sector as an important source of local economic growth, as trying to as a way to keep white collar white professionals from either leaving to go to the suburbs, keeping them downtown to work in close proximity, um, or building out the kind of amenities around the downtown financial sector uh, that could be a nice draw for for white suburbanites often. So this is a city that, quote unquote, again, kind of gets it right, or maybe is ahead of the curve of other cities who, uh, in the 1980s onwards, who would begin to turn to a certain type of tourism, financial services, and so forth. But nevertheless, by the 1980s, you still see these city officials going to Wall Street, going to New York, uh, and trying to perform their credit worthiness, trying to suggest the importance of, and in some cases being explicit around potential revenue derived from a new baseball stadium or a new convention center. Uh, and so you see, for instance, also in the late 1990s, Willie Brown, uh, the first black mayor of the city, by that point in time, you hear, you have the, the bond buyer, uh, which is a crucial uh, organ of the, the bond business, basically say about, about Willie Brown that like, you know, it's fine being a black mayor, right? So we think about the changing racial politics in the post-civil rights era. Right? It's fine at that point for black people to be in political positions of power. But the issue is for the bond buyer is will Willie Brown control social spending? Will he more or less betray some of his constituencies, white, uh, white, uh, black working class constituencies uh, who may be demanding greater expansion of social services. Uh, and so if he is able to do that, then San Francisco's credit will remain sterling and, and, and just fine. But if not, well, then we have a concern about San Francisco. So anyway, there's a way in which here you have the city with the black mayor. Here you have uh, the city that ties itself to financial services, but nevertheless has to perform and hit the evaluative rubrics and hold the line on certain kinds of spending, prioritize certain kinds of uh, bondholder, uh, certain kinds of uh, infrastructure and social service projects through bond finance. That makes it very similar to the predicaments of cities elsewhere. And that's the story. So in other words, you know, to my mind, the kind of inequalities that we see, uh, austerity, retrenchments that we see in so many parts of the country um, are rooted in, going back to the earlier point, the changing mechanisms of debt and the industrialization, the inequalities that derive from, that flow from deindustrialization are layered atop what is at base, the structural dependence of cities on a predatory extractive bond market. And so San Francisco, to me, was a really great, important, great and important case study to make that point about, you know, inequalities that we often attribute to, again, neoliberalism, uh, other kinds of meta narratives is actually um, very much um, and perhaps uh, mostly primarily rooted in questions of real estate and, and the bond market in particular. Destin Jenkins teaches history at Stanford University. He writes about debt inequality and the history of racial capitalism, and is the author of The Bonds of Inequality, Debt and the Making of the American City. Welcome to another episode of the Blue Collar Gospel Hour. My name is Dan Denton, and I am your host. Yeah, uh, we've got a great episode for you today. My good friend, 
Carrie Troutman came and visited the studio and sat down and did an interview with me. Carrie is a longtime poet in Northwest Ohio, an incredible poet, maybe secretly underground, one of the hardest working poets in Northwest Ohio, at least. Carrie has is the author of the following books, To Have Hoped from Finishing Line Press, Artifacts from Night Ballet Press, and To Be Nonchalantly Alive by Kelsey Books, and... Most recently, Marilyn from Gutter Snob Books. Carrie sits down with us, talks about what it's like to be a mother of five children and still be an incredible poet along with having a career. So I guess, tell us about Marilyn. Do that first. So I was at a charity auction for something in Toledo called Cat Fest, which was for charitable, for Cat Russell, who who was murdered by her domestic partner, basically. And so different artists get together, mainly musician anymore. It's mainly a music thing. But there was a, a component that was a charity auction, and this painting was donated. And I was drawn to it. I bid on it. I was the only bidder. But I took her home, and she was about a 12 by 16 or so canvas that was a self-portrait. And I looked on the back, and I saw the, the name of the artist, Marilyn Decker, who's a Toledoan, and I looked her up online, and I, the portrait was actually on her website as a thumbnail th- as you click on the different images, some samplings of her work. And so I propped her up on my writing desk, and my kids said, who's this? Why is there a lady staring at us from the writing desk? Because it's also the room that they play we and stuff in. It's just a TV room. And she sat there for a while staring at me as I would work. And I eventually started writing to her, started out to her just as though she's looking over my shoulder and I'm, hey, stop looking at me. I know I should be doing something productive here, those kinds of thoughts. And then eventually I started imagining a life for her, a past for her, not knowing anything about her personally beyond her website. So as the book progresses, they go from me looking at her more to her looking at me and then me looking deeper into her and her talking to me. So it was a very organic process that eventually I had 20 poems that I thought, where did this come from? It didn't set out as that, as a project to do that, but it was just a distraction and something to write about at the time that ended I was, up I was going to ask you, so that was going to be my question before I said, why don't you tell us about it first? <laughs> uh, because then that, that segues into this question. It's different from a lot of your other work. And I wondered as a writer myself, if maybe that wasn't like something like between projects or between poems and you just started writing about it because sometimes I'll do I wrote like a short story that's 25 pages long just to have something to write it may never see light of day it's weird but it's, just like yeah. an exercise in writing was that kind of what that started out as I would say yeah I like to write from prompts like during the poetry month when people will put out poetry prompts as just a way to just make me flex that muscle and just write something even if it's not going anywhere so that's what this ended up being like she was a prompt something to do I wasn't working on a sort of overarching project at the time. So my time and energy were open to just Mm -hmm. going here on this little tangent that presented itself. So I'll read a poem that's a dad poem. So this is called The Grass That It Is, and this is from To Have Hoped. As if February weren't bastard enough, Lake Erie rejected my father's ashes, strewn, blown to diginess atop the ice, refusing to swallow, to digest, to feed what lies below in the cold rhythm. In my childhood garden, he snipped asparagus and zinnias into a bait bucket together, green thumbs and electric petals. He taught me to harvest night crawlers for the weekend's fishing. He knived swelled tomatoes, fed me the warm wedges, 
plucked sugar snap peas, tucking them in my pockets for an afternoon's worth of nibbling, hauled crates of zucchini and crooknecks to his co-workers, grateful and befuddled, plunged fists into the soil for jeweled beets to slice with Lake Erie perch, and picked strawberries for shortcake enough to call the neighbors over. Today, February rains a glaze of ice to my brown lawn, my frozen garden mud. I chop a waxed grocery bell pepper, peel the fibrous ends of a pound of asparagus, revealing itself for the grass that it is. So. Nice. I would you. say you're a fantastically creative person. Well, thank you. Carrie, so thank thanks you. for joining appreciate us. appreciate it. All right. Thanks. From the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. Welcome to America Works, interviews with contemporary workers throughout the United States, collected by the library's American Folklife Center as part of its Occupational Folklife Project. This is AFC staff folklorist Nancy Gross, and this America Works podcast features excerpts from a longer interview with Thomas Sink, who is better known to his many fans as Popcorn the Circus Comic. Unlike most of the other workers in this series, Popcorn was actually retired when he did this interview. He was interviewed by Tanya Fincham and Juliana Nicolaisian of Oklahoma State University for their AFC-sponsored project, The Big Top Show Goes On. I was born at a very early age, somewhere in the East, and I wanted to be a magician. I always hung out at the, the men magic house, but then I seen you had to carry all these props. <laughs> so then... I lucked in. I Anyway, I started out on spook shows where theater would bring in the horror movies in black and white, and then magicians and the hunchback and the head chopper and all that. I started on spook shows with Phil Chandler. Number one in clowning, you need a good announcer. <laughs> yes, I became popcorn. And if you ask anybody within six miles, <laughs> they don't know my name. Well, how did you come up with the name Popcorn? I stole it. <laughs> yeah, from a guy named Popcorn, and he was not a clown. And it's a catchy name. They'll always hear it. What, what drew you to clowning? What made you want to become a clown? Never. 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 I never thought I'd end up in the business. And I spent 30-some years there. I had a knack. That's all I can tell you. That, but I consider myself the last of the old-timers. Get tired of being on the road? Uh, too old. <laughs> I've fallen down and can't get up. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> I used to tell them when I, before I retired, if I dropped dead in the ring, make it funny and get me out of there. <laughs> when you're performing, are you paying attention to the crowd? What, what's, what are you? What I, are you... I pay attention to everything. The crowd, how they're moving, 
It's not going over. We're going to cut it short. <laughs> get in and get out. In the old days, there used to be 30, 40 clowns on some of these shows. And then the shows got less. When I started, there were around 150 shows on the road. I think now there might be 10, 15 at the most. And all of a sudden, you had nowhere to go. And the clown alleys got less and less. And in the old days, every clown had a character like the cop and the buffoon and the pretty one. <laughs> but that all disappeared. It's a neat life. You either like it or you don't. Some joined the circus and lasted three, four days. Some might have made it three weeks. They come and go. And I have no idea why I ended up there in the circus. I think I felt I loved the audience. It was a challenge. <laughs> Is it hard to teach somebody how to climb? Yes. They either got it or they don't. I loved the audience. I, lo I liked the smell, the big top. Yes. And I had, I got accepted in a very hard business and did it for 30 some years. There's nothing better than the smell, the roar, the if we can get them to roar. <laughs> when people think back to Popcorn the Clown in his heyday, what do you want people to remember? He was kind of funny. <laughs> really. I made it somewhere where you don't make it much. And why, I have no idea. The mud, the rain, the snow, the sleet, the hail, the wrecks, the... Did we blow the arrows? Damn, gotta turn around. <laughs> That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 Labor Radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Remember, we've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet, and find out more on our website at LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show.